Now, listen. I mean, really listen. Think not only about what I'm saying, but why I'm saying it. Observe the effect my words and my tone are having on you. Let it be possible that what I'm saying might change you and how you think. Only then will the interaction we're having fulfil its potential for us both. Now, this may seem like rather a big ask, but a commitment to real listening is something being called for by both my guests on today's Bridges to the Future. They are two people I have known for many years that I have grown to admire enormously and that I think you, dear listeners, should get to know better. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. So let me start with you, Emily, Emily Casriel. So Emily, tell us who you are, what you do. Well, I work at the BBC and I've been leading the Crossing Divides project at the BBC, which is all about bringing people together across lines of race, class, religion, age and politics. And it was award winning and was TV, radio, online, social media. And we had actually over 40 million page views and 40 million social views. I'm also an executive coach and done some conflict mediation training. And at the moment, I'm researching deep listening at LSE as a practitioner in residence at the Marshall Centre. So I'm tremendously looking forward to the conversation and also with Stephen Coleman, who has so many themes of great interest in his book. Well, Stephen, you've been queued up perfectly. Tell us about yourself, Stephen. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, I must say the name of the book is How People Talk About Politics. I'm Professor of Political Communication at the University of Leeds. I've worked in this rather odd field called political communication for a long time. And very early on in my career, I discovered something strange, which is that when people talk about political communication, they mainly study politicians speaking to, very often at, the public. And political communication is very rarely about the public talking to politicians or indeed to each other. And I guess that I've devoted most of my career to trying to understand what happens when people try to talk to each other about things that really matter to them and which they might disagree about, which we call politics. So one of the things that you two have in common is that you're both, I think, trying to challenge different types of orthodoxy or different kind of conventional practice. And so I'll start with you, Stephen. In your book, How People Talk About Politics, you are, as you've said, trying to challenge the way in which we think about this problem of how people engage in politics. So I'm interested in particular what you're trying to do there, because one of the themes that I've followed your career for many years is this desire you have to try to change the nature of the conversation. You wrote a fantastic pamphlet many years ago about people who are political junkies and people who watch Big Brother. And what I remember from that pamphlet, Stephen, was that the people who watched Big Brother rather respected the political junkies, as you described them, even though they weren't political, whereas the political junkies had nothing but contempt for the people who watched Big Brother. And 
you are also the author of one of the phrases I most often use. I get lots of laughs for it, even though it's not my phrase. I always attribute to you, Stephen, which is I think you once said, the problem with politics is hard to reach people and there are no harder to reach people than politicians. So tell us briefly in your book, how are you trying to change the way in which we talk about this problem of how people engage in politics? I think it's a problem of scale, Matthew, that we tend to start at the big macro Channel 4 News, Newsnight end of things. And actually, politics operates at the level of particularity. It's not even simply local. It's biographical. So when people argue with each other about Brexit, they're very rarely arguing about international trade deals. They're arguing about Who's he to talk to me like that? Oh, well, he comes from the kind of background that wouldn't understand where I come from. And politics is inflected with the experiential quality of injury, of misrecognition, of miscommunication, as well as occasional moments of wonderful leaning towards one another, as Martin Buber, the philosopher, put it. We lean towards one another as if to say, I want to know what that other person has got to say. I want to know where they've been. I want to know why they put it the way they do. And that particularity, I think, is missing. It's missing from political studies. It's very often similarly missing from economic studies, where we are so obsessed by the generality, the tendencies, the vastness of the swings and curves of the graph, that we miss the fact that this only has any kind of meaning in the context of lives that are situated in a very specific context. And that's why in your book, which is a fascinating kind of combination of kind of quite challenging social science and theory with biographical stories of the people that you interviewed, including children, you do that because I think you want us to understand what is at stake for people when they choose to get involved in politics or indeed often choose not to get involved in politics because, in a sense, too much is at stake. Yeah, and it's about people recognising that the people who tell the best stories about their lives are people. So we have these massive kind of methodological debates within social science about how do you find out things. And I have a two-word answer to those methodological ones, not the one you might be expecting, which is ask people. (laughs) If you sit down with people for long enough, When I wrote a book about how people feel about voting, there was a person who told me that she was so excited the first time she had a chance to vote that she peed herself. And that's something you don't read in most of the social science books, and you'll never know unless you sit down with someone and understand what something is like at a visceral level, not what it's like at a conceptual level. And so, of course, politics is also about these big aggregative trends that we have to contend with. Of course it is. and We can't ignore those. But the moment that you lose the particularity within which that is rooted, there is a danger that you become a kind of Soviet-style technocrat. And one of the things I found fascinating about your biographical, your kind of pen pictures, is the importance of conflict in people's biographical accounts. That 
people's attitude to whether or not conflict was something that could result in could be a creative thing that would move us forward or that was necessary because of the injustices of society or whether conflict was a dangerous thing or indeed in the case of I think you know one of the people you interviewed who'd been involved in politics and had stepped away from it because he'd just come to the conclusion this conflict was too damaging for him and it seemed pointless so the kind of confidence we have in what can emerge from difference is a recurrent theme in these kind of biographical accounts. Yeah. And can I just say something about confidence, which is that, you know, I think we all know how important confidence is to this, but we have great difficulty understanding where confidence comes from. And because we are surrounded by this rather awful sort of psycho-babblish confidence industry, which is constantly giving people confidence, resilience, all these other things that very often are a little bit thin in their delivery, I think we've taken our eye off the ball. Confidence is absolutely central. As Hannah Arendt said, people have to have the courage to speak. And, you know, the three of us in this conversation might find a little bit of conflict rather enjoyable, perhaps at a dinner party. But when you're in an office with a group of people for whom conflict can mean long-term exclusion from the group, it's a big risk. And in families, it's a big risk. And so politics becomes understood as something that is very scary. And developing that confidence in people, I think, is one of the most important educational ambitions that we should have as a democratic society. So, Emily, when I, well, actually, when I first met you, you were a producer on a program that I had a short-lived tenure on. But after that, when I kind of got to know your own work in particular, it was around the notion of solutions journalism. So it was around the idea of you wanting journalists to be more willing to focus on positivity and solutions and not just, as it were, the tendency of news to be about kind of bad things and things going wrong. And then you've moved to this particular focus on bringing people together and on the role of listening in that. To what extent is there an underlying story here, which is around wanting to promote a different type of journalism, a different type of media? I think that there's a real opportunity to create media which makes sense to people because it tells the whole story. I mean, I've always felt, and indeed, you know, many years ago, I was covering an election in Nigeria and I was reporting alongside a local journalist and we went to look at a polling booth in Lagos and it was really peaceful. And I said to him, look, can we please go somewhere where we can have some news to report? Because I was just focused on looking for conflict. I didn't see the fact that this was a very peaceful polling area and everybody was voting well as part of the story. And I saw in retrospect the fact that I was only looking at the world with one eye. And so I became interested in solutions journalism and indeed in leading solution-focused journalism initiative across BBC News. And indeed, you're right, from that, I developed an interest in crossing divides and the fact that media tell stories about conflict. We're tuned in to spot the tigers in the savannah rather than things which are going right. And so we predominantly focus on that. And in doing so, I think we don't tell a true and accurate picture of the world. And so by telling stories of people who come 
in very difficult situations to challenge themselves to reach out across the divide and engage with people who think differently and come from different perspectives, there's an opportunity to normalize those type of conversations. And I think really for me, you know, we have a kaleidoscope of identities and opinions around Brexit. And you look what's going on in the US elections and around COVID. When we see people with what they call effective polarization, people who dislike each other, reduce each other to simple identities. And I think we can really find better ways to listen across these divides by really listening, as Stephen was saying, to the biographical stories of people including their emotions, people with different perspectives and experiences. And I think we don't often do that because we're like cocooned in our echo chambers. But by coming to this richer understanding as journalists, we can tell better, truer stories which resonate with our audiences more. But also we demonstrate that listening so that people can feel heard. And there's some really great academic research in that Avram Kluger in the University of Jerusalem, amongst others, and drawing on the work of Carl Rogers, that when people feel truly heard, they can feel more valued, accepted and connected and therefore less defensive, more open to different sorts of perspectives. But this doesn't mean that we agree with what the speaker is saying. It's just that openness to listen. And also I think that this can spread if you look at the work of Nicholas Christakis and social contagion, that empathy is something which is socially contagious and can also, if we then come to understand people better who think differently to ourselves, I think the whole of society comes to have a greater vested interest in the health and welfare of a society. So rather than a sort of us and them, it becomes more of a we because we've seen the humanity at the other side of the table. I really want to bring Stephen in to kind of respond to what you said, Emily. But just before I do that, when Stephen was talking about the way in which people manage conflict or the confidence they feel about doing that, it did put me in mind of the recent lovely piece you've written about farmers in Shropshire and their attitude to climate change. And one of the things in that article was different generations or neighbours had very different views. And it seemed to me part of the kind of social performance that was involved there was stepping around each other's differences rather than feeling, as it were, a confidence about kind of engaging with those differences. I think that's a really deep insight. And what I found was extraordinary because there was such a range of opinion about climate change within this tiny, there was Hannah and her boss, Philip, and Philip's brother. And yet they accepted these differences. And indeed, Philip, who very vehemently denied the reality of climate change, was keen for me to meet his brother, who very much took climate change on board and had made tremendous investment in his farm in order to lower his carbon and methane footprint. So I think the confidence issue is a really interesting one. And I think that Stephen's thought around the fact that we need to encourage and inculcate people to have that confidence because when people can express themselves, it is about assuming an agency around their own story, which I think is really, really critical. But crucially, I think it's important that people need to listen. So it's not just the ability to express, but it's about being heard. So Stephen, from your perspective, to what extent is media, both traditional media and now of course social media, and I know you've written a lot about this, part of the problem and how could it be part of the solution? So in relation to the traditional media, for example, it feels to me as though 
part of what goes on here is actually we in our day-to-day lives find ways of dealing with difference, you know, within our families, amongst our friends. And, and we kind of do it okay most of the time. But in a sense, what the media portrays to us is how much harder that is, how much more dangerous that is in the civic sphere. And I wonder whether journalists partly do that to justify themselves. It's, you know, if we weren't here to mediate, you guys would be tearing each other limb from limb. And then, of course, you'll need to move on in your answers even to social media, which many people blame for polarization, echo chambers, the inability of people to engage with opinions other than the ones that they hold themselves? Mm. I think, first of all, that there's something terribly neurotic about the mainstream media, an awful sense of uh, terrible things could happen if almost anything does happen other than what was planned. (laughs) And that's not a very good way to proceed. You know, if you're a teacher in a classroom and you try to teach like that, it's going to go badly wrong. So it seems to me that a lot of this is a kind of terrible generic uptightness that we teach to journalists about controlling events and about making sure that people do what they need to do. And of course, Social media is the kind of the antithesis of this. It's it's the Wild West, and it has been open to anyone to say anything. But I want to make two points about listening on social media. First of all, there's a lot more listening that goes on than we hear about. As with Emily's examples, if you do studies on intolerance on the internet, you'll find a lot of it. But if you actually look empirically at the wide range of things that are going on. There's a lot of listening. And most interesting, there's a lot of inadvertent listening. There are people who have a friend of a friend of a friend on Facebook who tells them something that changes their mind. And that's really important. But there's also a great deal within the current media that fails one of the major tests of my thinking about communication. And that I refer to as translation. And I think Emily was describing this really well. One of the things that we need to do when we speak politically is to translate the particular into something that is meaningful to others. In other words, this is not simply a matter of constantly talking about our own sorrows. It has to be translated into a form that is social. And We are good at doing that as human beings. We're exceptionally good at doing that. But I think we are rather imprisoned by what I would call a political genre. It's a performance, as you said, that politicians learn. I think political journalists, not all journalists, but political journalists tend to learn it. It's a way of talking. It's a way of trying to dramatize the situation that actually doesn't work with most people. So, you know, when political journalists tell us, you know, there's an incredibly exciting moment in the Brexit debate, it is incredibly exciting for the 2% of people who find these things terribly exciting. But you're not going to persuade the other 98% by telling them it's, it's exciting. What you've got to do is make it relevant. And what you've got to do to make it relevant is to listen to what people care about. And that is something that I think the mainstream media has not been good at doing. It's been tokenistic about it. We have phone-in programs. We have televised votes where you can choose yay or nay. But what it doesn't yet, what it hasn't adapted to, 
is the broadest communicative context of interactivity and the necessary translation that goes with that. So, Emily, you're an innovator, and I'm interested in what you think can be done about what Stephen's described, because I, I agree, and I'd kind of give you three examples of this. The first is the appalling use of vox pops in news reporting, which is entirely corrupt in the sense that it purports to be a journalist going out and randomly finding people. What it actually is, is a journalist required to find two people who will say one thing and two people who will say another thing, and, and presumably some kind of sort of social mix in order to kind of build a bridge within a story. And the very nature of the Vox Pops, which last a few seconds, is the possibility of any kind of nuance, complexity or anything else is not there. A second example, which I found quite interesting recently, is is how Question Time, the BBC programme Question Time, has changed in the world of lockdown to become more civilised, actually. I mean, I don't know whether its viewing figures have collapsed, and maybe they have, and that may be part of the problem. But, you know, it used to be entirely set up, it felt, to be kind of gladiatorial. And although the BBC would say, well, we'd do our best not for it to be like that, that's how it ended up. Whereas now, in a sense, you know, with the with the screen behind a smaller group of people, each of which is allowed a bit more time, it has a, a greater quality. I kind of feel as though I'm getting to know the people who are in the audience on virtual question time in a way I never did before. In fact, I, I felt a kind of almost hostility to the audience. I thought anyone who wants to be in the audience at question time is problematic. And then a third example is the constant frustration I've had over many years in getting the mainstream media to want to report deliberative democracy, to which I've always really had the same response, and it gets dressed up, but it's always the same, which is, well, it's very boring watching a group of citizens sit around a table and discuss something and tend to agree with each other and listen to each other. Well, it's rather dull, and which makes my blood boil, because I want to say to journalists, well, isn't it your job if something as valid and important like deliberative democracy is, it's a growing phenomenon around the world, to find a way of making it interesting? So that's my rant, Emily. As an innovator, what more could the mainstream media be doing to address some of the issues that Stephen and I have raised? I think you raise really interesting issues, and I think the limitations of Vox Pops have been acknowledged, certainly inside the BBC, for a great deal of time. I think according audiences proper respect, and indeed from the work I've done on deep listening, the sort of by the German philosopher about the respect of dignity is enormously empowering for them and indeed of audiences because we can then see the agency of these people being accorded that respect. And I think it's tremendously important. I should say, for example, during the elections, the BBC did commission some really deep dives with individuals to map their journey in through the whole electoral process and the way that their opinions were changing so we could get to know them better. But I still think there's a lot more that we can do. I'd like to pick up because earlier we were talking about using the word conflict where people have different opinions, but I don't think that having different opinions need lead to conflict because we can acknowledge our differences, but it's acknowledging the humanity of the person who holds these differences. And if we can understand the life story, which you did so beautifully in your book, Stephen, of individuals, we can then better understand why they have these differences. And in doing so, we can then have the possibility of finding places of connection. So, Emily, let's get into this listening thing, because in a sense, that was at the heart of what I wanted to talk about. You know, we say on Bridges to the Future, what is your big idea for the future? And I guess listening is the big idea for our conversation. So, Emily, just tell me a bit more about this notion of deep 
listening, what it involves, and how most of the time when we would claim that we are listening, we're not really deep listening. I completely agree with you because deep listening is actually really challenging. Now, I've been spending a lot of time on deep listening, but I find it is challenging, especially when you feel very passionately about a subject, because a lot of the time we want to show how smart we are. We want to find flaws in the other person's arguments. We're just looking for those spaces within which to insert our opinions. Somebody called it preloading our verbal gun, which I rather liked. We may see each other as threats rather than this sense of being part of a common humanity. So often we're in this hypervigilant state when we have a need to defend ourselves and attack the other. And in that state, it's impossible to feel curious. So at the heart of deep listening is really about paying attention in a particular way. It's about aligning our bodies, our feelings and our thoughts on to the other person speaking. And in doing so, we need to be aware of our responses and our judgments and attempt to put them aside in a desire to really understand what's going on with the other person. And it's almost I mean, as an executive coach at the beginning, I used to take loads of notes, worried I'd forget. And now I don't. I just try and listen with my whole body, my whole being, my heart to understand the deep story behind what the other person is saying. Not about judging. It's not about solving or evaluating, which is often our response when we listen, but to understand not only what's being said, but also critically the emotions. And then the way of doing it is that you then have an idea of what the person said and you offer it back to them to check in with them whether you've heard correctly. And you'll say, have I got it right? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know that you haven't actually got it right. So you can say, okay, what did I miss? What more is there? And what more is critical rather than what else, which moves you sideways? And they then will think more deeply. And through this process, what's so exciting about it is that it's not only you as a listener who comes to have a deeper understanding, but the speaker themselves can start to have new different thoughts and have a deeper understanding of themselves. So that sounds like almost a kind of psychotherapeutic process. And Stephen, in your book, there's a lot that's very rich there about these different forms of communication and an appreciation of what is going on deeply in conversations. And also you too in the book make distinctions between the different ways in which people approach communication and whether they are kind of primarily there to state something which is already a fixed view or they are there genuinely to create the possibility of something happening in this interaction. Mm. Richard Rorty talked about the difference between a final vocabulary and an unfinished conversation. A lot of politics takes place as if we know what every word means before we start. And that's a terrible way to engage in any kind of intellectual pursuit. But the unfinished conversation has, in the true meaning of the term, a kind of an ironic sense. That is to say, one is never so committed to something that you can't change your mind without losing your identity. And that sense of openness to the argument is important. But very specifically, and I really like what Emily said more than once about the embodied nature of listening, and it comes back to this question of the confidence to listen and the confidence to want to be listened to. And this is something I think that we have to teach as we have to teach 
a whole lot of other very basic skills in life. And how we do that is something that we are only just starting to think about because we have a kind of long history of rhetorical education, particularly in the public schools and going back much further, where people were taught how to perform in a certain kind of authoritative way. And very often that became the synonym for confidence. But it seems to me that the kind of confidence that we need to instill in young people and young adults is the confidence to disagree without it turning into something violent, whether it's violent in speech or violent physically. And that's a fear. Very interesting. When I went around and talked to my interviewees for my book about their experiences of talking about politics, a lot of those who said we will never talk about politics said we're worried that it will end in a fight. And that's not something that tends to, you know, concern people who are accomplished in all of this. But it's a real concern for lots of other people that this can end up rolling on the floor with somebody else, fighting them over different perspectives. And we have to instill the confidence which says, this is not going to end that way. This is going to end really well, because a lot of listening is going to frame the way in which this disagreement is aired. So Emily, I'd like to talk about a couple of the kind of almost technical elements of this listening challenge, building on what Stephen said. And so the first is, and there's a bit of personal pain here, the concept of agreeing to disagree, that if people who disagree can at least agree what it is they disagree about, they're then on safer territory. And the problem with most politics is that politics is not about agreeing what you disagree about. It's about caricaturing what you disagree about. And that's why, as Stephen finds in his book, that's why people are, one of the reasons they dislike politics so much is they feel that the disingenuous nature of it, that it isn't really an attempt to discover anything at all, but it's just people seeking, as it were, to play a game that they have become skilled at. So I'm, I'm interested first in the importance of this agreeing to disagree. I did a few radio programs on this idea of getting people to agree what they disagreed about. I couldn't make it work. And now Anne McElvoy is doing a version of it that's much better than what I did. But then the second thing is silence. Isn't silence a really important part of this? And isn't that one of the problems for the media? I mean, and I'm not saying this in a critical sense. I just think it's inevitable. I do moral maze. And, you know, quite often when I go in to do moral maze, I say to myself, I must really listen because I know I'll be better on the programme if I really listen very carefully to what the person I'm interrogating says or to what my fellow panellists say. But almost invariably, I stop listening at some point, usually quite early on, because I am nervous that if I listen too hard, I won't have anything to say when Michael Burke turns to me and says, well, what do you think, Matthew? Or I won't have a next question to ask. And part of that is because if I was to, for example, not say anything for a couple of seconds while I was reflecting. And if it was live, it would feel like it was a disaster. So silence as well, coping with silence, is that part of listening? 
I'll take the silence question first. Absolutely critical. Because what's so exciting about silence is that there's so many different types of silence. And often when the person is speaking is silent, they're going on an internal journey themselves. And you can actually watch this by looking at their eyes. They might often look upwards as they're doing it. And you know they're going on an exciting journey. And what's so fantastic is the way that you listen to them and you accompany them on that journey means that they're going to have much richer thoughts. And the media doesn't like silence. In fact, people think it's a problem. I remember an old philosopher friend of mine used to hate the fact that I used to de-um interviews and take all the ums out and make it look like people were speaking so eloquently when in fact they were thinking as well as speaking because that silent thinking is really, really critical. On the question about agreeing to disagree, I couldn't agree with you more. And actually what was really exciting, just at the very beginning of COVID, it was on March the 5th, as part of Crossing Divides, we held a really big festival in Salford along with BBC Five Live. And I trained over 200 people in deep listening and they were from communities across Manchester and also from different parts of the UK, homeless people, Nigerian immigrants, students, a very diverse set of people. So we trained them in deep listening and then got them to fill out a little questionnaire about how strongly they felt about issues like Brexit or immigration or climate and then match them up across opposites. And then they had this opportunity to try and practice this deep listening with somebody with very different views. And it was remarkable the feedback we heard from them after the opportunity because they said, I never thought that you could have so much in common with somebody who feels so differently on such an important issue. And because they were using these different sorts of techniques, they felt that they were kind of empowered and almost given permission to have a very different sort of conversation. And I think it would just be so wonderful if we could normalise those very different types of opportunities and normalise us going off to have encounters with people who feel and think very differently to ourselves. Now, at this point in Bridges to the Future, I try and challenge my guests slightly. So this is a bit hard because I'm slightly in awe of both of you, but I am going to challenge you and I'm going to challenge you in two different ways. The first is one of the ways in which people exert kind of power and control, it seems to me, in conversations that are between politicians or experts or professionals and the public is the suggestion that whilst the public are idiosyncratic and they bring themselves to it and their emotions to it, that the politicians, the experts, the professionals, we're above that. We view things with the appropriate kind of distance and rationality and expertise. Now, I want to ask, how do you two avoid that? I'll start with you, Stephen, because you know I loved your book, but you're not in it. I mean, you're in it in the sense of your opinions are in it, your thoughts are in it, but you yourself, Stephen Coleman, you know what is interesting is there's all these biographical detail, and of course, you know you're you're not revealing the identity of the people you interview, but you didn't decide to put your own biographical story into the book very much. Was it a choice or, or did you just think as an academic who I am and my biography and my attitude to this isn't terribly relevant? Well, it's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, the facetious answer is if I would have tried writing about myself, I'd have been so excited and interested. <laughs> so I had to control my ego. But it's really interesting. I wrote an earlier book, which was very, very similar, but it was about people's experiences of voting. And then a group of actors decided to turn that book into a verbatim play, which was put on at the county hall in 
London and then at the West Yorkshire Playhouse in Leeds, in which they took my interviews. And to my horror, the director, after the first rehearsal, said, well, look, there's one obvious character who runs through all of these interviews who is not written about at all in the book, and that is you. And I had to go to the first night of the play and see myself, played by a guy from Downton Abbey. And it was a very, very interesting experience. And I, at the end of it, thought, what an opinionated person this is. I'm really glad he wasn't in the book. I'm slightly embarrassed he ended up in the play. You're right. It's something that, you know, first year undergraduates at university get worried about. They say, can I use the word I? Because, you know, they've been taught through GCSEs and A-levels that you've always got to write essays impersonally, you know, one might say. And I always say to them, look, please do and tell us a bit about yourself and why you're writing this essay and why it's interesting to you. And I think I think I'm at fault. And I recently published another book, which is about the election in Bradford, which was very much I was a character in that book. It was an ethnographic study. And as we walked around Bradford, I talked about not only the people we were talking to, but the effect it had on me. And I think from that point of view, it was a much more interesting book. Although I think this one is, I hope, theoretically illuminating. Emily, your Shropshire piece, people will be able to read very soon on the BBC website. You know, it's a wonderful, vivid, warm account of the people that you meet. But again, I guess if I was critical, I'd say you're there because you're describing it and you're describing it these empathic and warm terms. But you're not there in the sense of what's happening for you in these conversations. It's a really interesting question because we all know that we make instinctive judgments. Daniel Kahneman has done so much work on that. And then we later back this up with rational argument that we think is totally rational. And yet our emotions and the way that we feel is really, really critical. And I think really critical that we're aware of how we're feeling. And in the BBC, when we're being impartial, it's that awareness that gives us that opportunity to then put that aside in order to deliver to our audience our best understanding of what we're seeing, hearing and feeling before us. I think we need to be aware of ourselves in order to be able to do that. And I think that's a kind of lifelong journey. So my final question, and for this, I'm going to channel my inner Claire Fox, which is, I mean, that's a pretty brave thing that I'm doing. But I think if Claire Fox was in this conversation, the well-known Brexiteer and, and controversialist, she would say, my problem with all of this is that listening, this notion of listening, it's a way of soft pathologizing those you don't agree with. In a way, what it is, is saying, you know, we have to listen very hard to these people in order to understand why it is they have these really crazy opinions, like wanting to leave the European Union or not liking immigration. And if we listen and we adopt a sufficiently therapeutic mindset, we'll be able to understand the pathologies that lead them to have these awful opinions. And I'll turn to you on this, Stephen, if we could create the right environments like deliberative processes, for example, where everyone has to behave in a civilised manner, where we'll be able to coach people out of these unacceptable positions. I think Claire would just say, look, people are bloody angry. They don't like immigrants. They don't like Brexit. or They don't like this or they don't like that. Just accept what they're saying for face value and recognise that until you change society, they'll carry on being angry. 
Well, I think that people often have emotions because they're not properly heard and they want to be heard and they sometimes want the world to change in order to accord more keenly with their own ideas. But I think that it's like you've got to climb over the empathy wall that Ali Hochschild has talked about in order to have that analytical understanding. Because unless you really put yourself in their shoes and not just pretend to set aside your judgments, but genuinely try and get underneath their skin, there's no possibility of having a really proper, meaningful dialogue and discussion. First of all, I think you've characterized Claire Fox's bad argument really well. I think that the idea is based on the assumption that whenever one listens to somebody, they have a fully completed position. That, in other words, to put it very crudely, they know entirely what they're talking about. And of course, none of us do. We come from somewhere and we are going somewhere. And the conversations we have are what happen within the middle of all of that. And so the idea that when you listen to someone, you are simply listening to the fact that they are in favour of Brexit or they don't like immigrants, would simply be bad listening. What I think you want to listen to is what it is that that person is concerned about, what it is that needs to happen for them to flourish in the world as people who feel capable of living in a democracy. Now, I think that's a very different kind of listening, but you also then are listening out for is what might that person say or do next? You're talking to people as if they have agency. And therefore, you're asking, okay, you want this, but you want this because you are supposing that something can happen and that that thing will have consequences for you and for me. And that's the kind of listening that I'm in favor of. And so, of course, those people who see listening as a pathologizing process of, you know, cathartically allowing people to get something off their chest are just as mistaken as people who don't listen at all. But there is a better form of listening, just as there are better and worse forms of speaking. Well, I knew this would be a fascinating conversation, and so it has been. Stephen Coleman's book, How People Talk About Politics, it is written for an academic audience, but I would encourage you to read it and to challenge yourself. But also, any of Stephen's work is worth reading. Emily Casarell's article about Shropshire farmers and their attitude to climate change will be on the BBC website in a few days' time. But also, just put Emily Casarell into your search engine. You'll find all sorts of fantastic stuff that she's written and, and she's done. So thank you very much, Stephen and Emily. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.